Well, as you're seated, please take out your Bibles and turn to our reading today. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 25, or 35. 21 through 35, Matthew 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one right in the front of the seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please be sure and take that one home as St. John's gift to you so that we hope that you'll be in the Word every single day. So please turn to Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, the man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's masters took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. When the other servants saw that what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how the Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bill. Well, today, as we continue in our series, Airplane Mode, we are talking about conflict. We're talking about the opportunity that God gives us in the midst of conflict that he may use it in our lives and in the lives of those we're in conflict with to build a bridge instead of what often happens when we're left to our own natural devices. Because the truth is, if we do what we feel like doing much of the time in the midst of conflict, it's not the healthiest, is it? Uh, I I noticed uh, we've preached in this chapter of Matthew many times. Actually, I think at least once a year we try to get to it. And it's because we just have not overcome those unhealthy ways of dealing with conflict. And I was 
reminded of this um, just last night. I was reading through the news articles on my news feed on my phone, and uh, an article popped up for Valentine's Day at San Antonio at the San Antonio, Texas Zoo. Um, you can get a very special Valentine. Did you, Kathy? Did you read about this? Okay, so some, somebody, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you have a special Valentine this year, um, what I mean is if you have an ex-Valentine, um, whether it's a romantic ex-partner or a bad boss or whatever it is, you can go to the San Antonio Zoo website, and for a small donation, you can purchase a cockroach. And I'm not making this up. Kathy will tell you. She read the story, too. You can purchase a cockroach, and they will name the cockroach after that person, and they will feed it to an animal, and they will send a Valentine's to your significant other, letting them know that this has been done. Now, that's a small fee. For $150, and it's limited to 20 people, they will actually videotape the cockroach being eaten, and they will send that to that person. So that's one way. You just kind of leave that on the shelf here that you might want to deal with a conflict that you've been up against this year. Um, we're also going to look at Jesus' way and we'll weigh those two and see which one we decide might be better. And for years, as we've studied this passage, I've often been reminded of a Harvard study that I read um, a long time ago that, that linked personal relationships and the health of our relationships with those closest to us to our physical health. And so this week I was curious. I thought, I wonder what else that study has taught us over the years. And I learned a ton about that particular study. So Harvard University did a study that, that was really focused on what leads to longevity and health and happiness and fullness in life. And it's one of the longest studies that's ever been done on adult life. It started back in 1938. Um, it started with social scientists that recruited 268 Harvard sophomores. It was right in the middle, it kind of toward the end of the Great Depression. And they wanted to, to use them and follow them over a number of years to determine what is leading to health and happiness in the lives of others. And so this original group, it was only men, because men were the only ones that were admitted to Harvard at that time. And because it was Harvard, it included people that would eventually go on to some significant places in society. For example, John F. Kennedy, the late president, was part of that original group that they studied. Um, but over the years, they expanded the study. It's still going on today. And it, it now includes both women and men and their children. Um, they study people from different places, uh, both urban and rural generations, different socioeconomic levels. And after following these various groups of people, the article that I read on the study had it, it come out just a couple years ago. It was when the study was 80 years old. Uh, and so they had been following groups groups of people for 80 years to try to determine how we come together in health and wholeness in life and how our relationships impact that. And this is what they learned, and I quote, close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives, the study revealed. Those ties protect people from life's discontents 
help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. Fascinating, isn't it? Uh, as I continued to read, they cited um, several different examples and said people's, and I quote, people's level of satisfaction with their relationships at the age of 50 was a better predictor of physical health than cholesterol levels were. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a simple blood test that you could do just for that, right? Uh, the, the most recent director of the study, there's been four different directors of this study over the years. Um, he's a psychiatrist and a professor, Robert um, Waldinger. Um, he put it very bluntly, and I quote, loneliness kills. It is as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. And this research is ongoing, but it's already clear. Relationships are critical to our existence. We cannot survive without connection. We were made to love. It's why I don't think buying a cockroach from the zoo is going to help us here very much. And, and, and so if this is true, and I, and I can see it on your faces, I'm sure we all would agree. Like we see the research, but we already know this instinctively. I would say that one of the biggest reasons that we are more isolated now than, than maybe many of us ever have been does not have to do with proximity to other people. We're actually more connected now than we've ever been in all of human history. I was reminded of it just this week. I spent a few days in Arizona. I was at a pastor's conference there, and um, so you don't have to feel bad for me. It was only 60 degrees, okay? And I was like, oh, it's only 60 degrees, and I got off the plane, and I was like, 60 degrees. This is great. So, so you don't have to feel bad for me, but, but I'm always amazed whenever I go, because I don't travel very often, just how amazing technology is. Like, Thursday afternoon, I was eating lunch at Panera Bread in Phoenix, Arizona, and Thursday night, I was sleeping in my own bed in Wisconsin because of technology. And the entire time that I was gone, I was connected to my family, and they were connected to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, through my phone. I was able to FaceTime with my kids and show them cactus plants and all these different things and show them where I saw these, these rattlesnake um, skins. And then my wife told me I should stop hiking by myself because she got a little afraid there for just a minute. But it's just amazing to me. Proximity is not our problem. We are so connected to one another. I would argue that our problem today is conflict. And I actually think it's been the case since the beginning of humanity. It's why Jesus himself said that we can murder with our anger, didn't he? And the reason he said that was because when we let conflict separate us, it's as if the person that we're in conflict with is dead. And according to the Harvard study, that leaves us physically unhealthy and alone. And I find it fascinating that it took Harvard 80 years to discover what Jesus had already said 2,000 years ago. 
And, and it's because Jesus knew some things that maybe we don't know so naturally, that, that our lives were built upon the need for relationships. That's what we were designed for. That's what we were placed on earth to do, to have relationship with God and to have relationship with one another. These are the building blocks of the book of Genesis. At the very beginning, God created humanity in a garden to be in relationship with him and then said it is not good for man to be what? Anybody? Alone. It is not good for man to be alone, and so he created another. And since this has always been God's plan from the very beginning, our sin which we're defining during this series as a failure to love, right? Which I think is helpful when we think about relationships. Our failures to love break those relationships. And, and so Jesus came back to restore it. And what we're going to learn today is that not only does Jesus give us a practical way to deal with conflict in our lives, he shows us how to deal with conflict with others the same way he has dealt with our conflict with God. And then he promises to be with us as we go about that work. And so we're going to get into the reading today, which is a parable. And I asked Bill to read the whole thing in its entirety because in order to understand it, we actually have to go all the way to the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. We have to look at the entire chapter because it's all related to what ends up with the story that we read here at the beginning. And so this is why it's important for you to have your Bible open because I want you to see this and I want you to appreciate how all of this is connected. So if you look at Matthew 18 verse 1, you'll see that this whole section begins with the disciples asking Jesus a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it begins with a conflict. And the reason we know it's a conflict is because we hear the same story told in Luke's gospel, chapter 9. The disciples were fighting over who is the greatest. And Jesus famously replied by taking a young child and using that child as a sermon illustration and saying, this is what it looks like to be the greatest. And so we go to Matthew 18 and we see that he warns after that anybody who causes somebody who is a child, who has childlike faith to stumble. And then describes after that, if you look at verse 10, our heavenly father like a shepherd that owns a hundred sheep. And a hundred sheep that he owns, one of them gets lost. He leaves the 99 behind and he chases after the one that is gone. And then it's in the same breath after that that he tells the disciples, this is how you deal with sin. This is how you deal with someone in your community who fails to love you or fails to love God. And he's specifically talking about the church. Not because these are not principles that we can take outside of the church, but that this is the outpost of heaven. We learn how to deal with conflict in a better way here in this particular place. And so Jesus tells them how to do it. And I'm going to break it down to three simple steps that we can follow together if we want to see God use conflict in our relationships as a bridge that builds to a greater hope. First one comes in verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister sins, if your brother or sister fails to love, 
Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. First of three steps is this. The first step to build bridging in conflict is to, say it with me, go to the person. Go to the person. Now, why does Jesus call us to go to the person? Because all of this is through the eyes of Jesus about finding the lost sheep. Conflict resolution, according to Matthew 18, is a rescue plan. And it's why verse 15 ends with these words that if you bring them back together with you, you have won them over. And that's the last thing that most of us want to do, isn't it? When we're in conflict with somebody, what do we want to do? We want to avoid. We want to gossip. We want to defend. We want to buy a cockroach and have it fed to an animal and have them videotape it and send it to that person, right? Right? We, we laugh at that story because we know that probably by the time I'm preaching it, they're already sold out, right? We, we want to do those things instead of the things that God has called us to do. And yet what Jesus says is that when we are in conflict, it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to build a bridge. It's an opportunity to draw deeper in our relationship with that other person. But it's also an opportunity to experience the reality that God's grace has been upon our lives as well. See, when it comes to conflict, and I've said this before, God doesn't call us to set someone straight. That's not the primary goal in conflict. It is to reconcile. It is to win a sister or a brother over. And yet I am always aware that sometimes that isn't possible by going and talking to someone for a variety of different reasons. And so thankfully Jesus gives us more steps. In verse 16 he says, if they will not listen, because that happens, right? Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church And if they refuse to listen even to the church, buy them a cockroach. No, it doesn't say that. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If you have gone to the person to win them back, not to be right, but to win them back, and that didn't work, you take one or two others along. And not one or two others to, 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 they're not defense attorneys, okay? That's not the reason that you're bringing them. This is a rescue plan. I imagine that if you're in conflict with somebody else, if somebody is sinning, if they're failing to love, and your goal is to reconcile, is to bring them back, I imagine that it's like going to someone who's drowning in a river. And you went out to the riverside and you tried to pull them back in. And yet, unfortunately, they're so caught up in that current that we talked about sin being like, right? When we talked about the spiritual warfare, like sin is like a current drawing us away. And that current sometimes is so strong that we can't do it on our own. And so you bring one or two others along to hold your hand as you're reaching out that you might together not just save them, but make sure that you yourself don't drown too. And again, the hope is always that both of you are going to be saved. And yet, unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't work either. And so Jesus explains that sometimes we have to walk away. Sometimes we can't be reconciled on this side of eternity. Sometimes the person that you're in conflict with doesn't 
want to be pulled out. Maybe they've been abusive to you. There's no way to go to them without being pulled back in, and you should not go back if that is the situation. Maybe the only thing left to do is to walk away. But even then, when you treat a person like a pagan or a tax collector, and I'll never, I don't remember where I read this. This is not my idea. Most comment, many commentators, when, when you read that passage, will say that that's to kick the dust off your feet and walk away. And yet, a pagan or a tax collector, in these words at this time, would have been somebody that is known to be far from God. And what do you do for someone who is far from God? You pray for them. You pray for them. Maybe you can't be with them, but you can pray for them because the heart of God is even for pagans and tax collectors to come back to him. He is the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. And so distance might be necessary, but we can pray that condemnation does not have to be inevitable because it's not Now, I want you to notice something else here. Every step Jesus calls us to take in conflict, it's not contingent on the response of the other person. Everything he tells us to do kind of falls into the second thing that we learn about bridge building and conflict, and that is that it always begins with you. It always begins with you. I've often cited the book The Peacemaker by author Ken Sandy. He says, even if you are responsible for 2% of a conflict, You are 100% responsible for your 2%. And I love that. Because it's at this point that so many of us will often say, if it's their fault, shouldn't they be the one to take the first step? And I've asked that question. I think it's natural to ask that question. But then you think about the context of this, right? What has God done for you? Are you not thankful that God has not waited for us to come back to him. This is, this is all related. He went out to find the lost sheep. He doesn't wait for the sheep to realize that he's been wandering. The shepherd leaves to go and find him just like Jesus left heaven to find you and me. God took the first step in our conflict with him. And so as people made in the likeness and image of God, we are called to mirror that as best as we can in love when we're in conflict with somebody else by going and doing likewise. And the reason why is not just for our physical happiness on earth, but the third thing that we learn is that our relationships on earth have eternal implications in heaven. Our relationships have eternal implications in heaven. I'm not just making this up. We are not just building bridges on earth. Our relationships themselves are bridges to eternity. And that's the one piece that the Harvard study can never be able to research. No professor can reach up into heaven, right, and ask, could you fill out this survey for me? Can Can you tell me how this worked? And yet what we see here is that our relationships have an impact, not just on our lives here and now, but our lives forever. Jesus continued by saying this, truly I tell you, 
whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. See, I'm not making this up. This is Jesus. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. We know that we can't take anything with us, right? Like you've heard that before. Like we, we know that we can't take anything with us. There's, there's no hitch on the back of a hearse. Have you heard that joke? It's true. You can't take anything with you, your money, your achievements, your material possessions. And I found it fascinating that the Harvard study seems to back this up, doesn't it? Because those things, as they've studied for 80 years, they don't make life measurably better on this side of eternity either. Millionaires can be just as miserable as anybody. But you know it does make life measurably better now and for all of eternity? Relationships. Because relationships matter not just here, but they matter forever. Because relationships are not just physical, are they? See, we know this. They are matters of the heart. You know how I know this? Right? I could feel closer to my wife. Like when I, when I leave, you know, I try really hard the times that I do have to go and travel somewhere. I try really hard to make sure that I'm on good terms with my family. Right? I want to be on good terms with my family before I go, if anything were to happen, but also just for that peace of mind. And what I have learned is that if I'm not on good terms with somebody that I love, somebody in my family, I can feel more at distance with them, and I could be sleeping in the same room, in the same bed, and I could feel closer to them being a thousand miles away if we have been reconciled. The reason why is because relationships are not just physical. Relationships are matters of the heart, and conflict hardens the heart. And scripture uses this image more than once to describe that, that that's what sin does. Sin is a hardened heart. It is failure to love. It is a hardened heart vertically in our relationship with God that separates us from him, but horizontally it does the same thing in our relationships with others. And God does not want us to be separate from him. And that's why he sent the good shepherd, Jesus, to find you. And once you're found, your life calling is to go and to mirror that by doing the same for others, which leads us to Matthew 18, verse 21, the question that the disciple Peter asked that led to the parable we read at the very beginning. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who fails to love me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered infinity, infinity times. Now, let me be clear. If you're looking at your Bible, you'll see, did he just rewrite God's word? <laughs> I didn't rewrite God's word. The only thing I changed was the word sin, which is a failure to love, right? But it sure makes it more practical to read it that way, doesn't it? And the response that Jesus gave was essentially the same as you and me might say if we use the word infinity. It was a number beyond comprehension, and he goes on to explain it with the parable of the unmerciful servant. And, and, and you heard the story, so let me just summarize. I won't read through the whole thing again. You've got this servant's forgiven a crazy amount of money by his master. This is how much in today's dollars. Let's just, it's 20 years worth of pay, okay? 
That's, that's how much it was then. And so today, let's just assume, let's just assume that this person um, makes $50,000 a year. Multiply that by 20. Do you know anybody good at math? A million dollars, okay? This guy owes $1 million. I think the average credit card debt in America is like $5,000. This guy owes $1 million, and it's forgiven. It's gone. He asks for it to be forgiven, and it is. And then he goes immediately and shakes down his friend that owes the equivalent of 100 days' worth of wages, okay? And so if we use that same, that same figure of $50,000, let's say he and his fellow servant, because they're equals, let's say they make the same amount of money, that is $2,000. He owes him $2,000 thousand dollars he was just forgiven one million dollars his friend owes him two thousand dollars and he has him thrown in jail he takes him to small claims court he forces the issue on him and everybody knows it because when you're forgiven one million dollars people talk about you (laughs) you know that you know that? It's like winning the lottery, right? He, he, he won a million dollars, and so word gets out of how he handles his friend. And they go and they tell the master what happened. And the master responds in verse 32 by saying, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he Sounds harsh, doesn't it? He could have just bought a cockroach. (laughs) Why does Jesus follow up his instructions here? Let's take the whole thing in context, right? The instructions of how to deal with conflict as a rescue plan. All of these things with such a crazy story. And I've shared it this way before, and I'll share it again. It's this. As long as your hand is clenched around the neck of somebody that owes you something, you can't use it to receive the forgiveness that God is offering you right now. See, you're human. And that means that your human hands can only hold on to one thing at a time. And if your hands are clenched around the person that you have yet to forgive, you are not free to receive the forgiveness that God wants to extend to you, that he has already extended to you. God is offered. He's the king. He's the master. And he has already forgiven you more than a million dollars. You have been completely forgiven in his death and resurrection. He has paid the debt. And he doesn't just want you to be forgiven. He wants you to live forgiven. Proverbs 22 says this, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. This is more than money, friends. This is more than money. When the servant told his master, you don't have to pay it back, it's finished, you're done, you're forgiven, he didn't feel the relief. You see that? If you checked his blood pressure, it didn't change. You know why? Because he walked out the doors as a slave, and this time it wasn't a slave to the master. He was a slave to himself because he wouldn't let go of his friend. And so I look back at this Harvard study, and I I, I see so many things. They found that secure attachment leaves couples, so they looked at romantic couples, less depressed, more happy, 
and with better memory. But here was really helpful for me. They also learned that that doesn't mean, they watched couples who had been married for decades, it did not mean that they had smooth sailing in those secure relationships for all time. They studied couples that had been married for so long and learned that some of them could bicker day in and day out, but as long as they knew that they were securely loved, It said, and I quote, that when the going got tough and they could really count on that other person, if they knew that that was true, they were still healthier. They still were able to weather life and have the benefits that come from being attached to somebody else, even in the midst of conflict, because they knew they were connected. In Jesus' story, this man was forgiven. What he should have done is thrown open the doors and left that place singing, right? He should have felt such a relief off of his shoulders, but he was so busy not forgiving his fellow servant that practically speaking, it didn't matter. He never lived in the, in the freedom that he had been given. God wants you to live forgiven, not just to be Forgiven. It's why Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, and Bill's going to lead us through this as we prepare for communion. We open up our hands, right, as a sign of surrender. And part of the Lord's Prayer is, is this is how we pray. Forgive us our debts, right, as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Why? Because that's how it works. It's the prayer of both extending but also receiving. And I've alluded to this a couple times. I want to say it one more time, though. I could never in one sermon speak to all of the circumstances that we face in our lives where people have done things to us and we're holding back forgiveness from them because of something that they've done that has been an epic failure to love us. Sometimes the reason we don't forgive is because we're stubborn, right? And if that's the case, let me say this as lovingly as possible as your pastor. Cut it out. You're suffering. Don't be stubborn. Forgive. You don't have to forget. You don't have to be best friends. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be reconciled. I have done, I've, I've worked with families and served families, and their loved one has died, and I have encouraged them. Forgive your loved one while they're there in the casket. Forgive your loved one. Go to their grave. Forgive your loved one who's been long gone. Forgive them, not just for them. Forgive them for you. Because, see, none of this is to minimize the pain that's inflicted upon us by those who have sinned against us, those who have failed to love us. Sometimes we can't go to the other person and reconcile. Maybe they're dangerous, and you cannot go to them, and you shouldn't go to them physically. But that's why Jesus said that just like our efforts begin with ourselves, they end with ourselves too. Look at this, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister. Say those words with me. From your heart. It begins in your heart. Forgiveness begins in your heart. And if somebody has deeply wounded you, you might have to forgive them in times inside and, and, and let me encourage you do it every single time bitterness comes to the surface every single time hurt rises forgive don't forget 
That's impossible. Forgive and forget are not things you'll find in Scripture together. That's not what God calls us to do. Forgive in your heart, not just for them, but do it for you. In the parable, the servant owed $2,000. He did. He made a mistake. He owed the other guy some money. But both of them were in prison, and it had nothing to do with the money. It had everything to do with the heart. And so if you hear one thing this morning here, God has already forgiven you, the God of the universe, the one who created you for relationship with him. He has already forgiven you. He has already forgiven you on the cross. You have been debt-free for 2,000 years. And I've been a pastor long enough to know that the reason that so many of us don't walk out those doors after we worship together or wherever you're worshiping with us from home, feeling forgiven and singing, it has nothing to do with our theology. It's not that you don't believe me when I come up and say it or you don't believe God's word when you read it yourself. The reason you're not feeling forgiven is because you're still choking someone else in your heart. And if it's not another person, maybe it's a group of people Maybe it's a political party. Whatever it might be, you're choking them. You're holding back forgiveness. Let go. Let go of their necks so that you can receive the forgiveness that our master, Father God, has already extended to you and me. Receive it so that you then can serve others by extending it to them as well. Would you join me now as we pray? Lord Jesus, we come before you and we pray because none of this is possible without you. You have forgiven us. You have redeemed us. The reason we enter into the season of Lent that we're preparing for now in just a few weeks and we spend 40 days plus Sundays preparing to celebrate the resurrection is to be reminded of what great depths you have gone to reconcile yourself to us. So many of us walk around and, and we wonder, is God going to receive me? Does God accept me? Does God love me? We don't have to wonder that. You do. You came. You chased us down. We are all the one lost sheep that has gone astray, that the good shepherd has come all the way from heaven to bring back to the flock. And so, Lord, help us to receive that truth. Help us to feel that peace. Because we all need to be forgiven by you and we all have been in you and through you. Help us to internalize that truth in a way that we can't do ourselves but that we need the Holy Spirit to crack open our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Help us to do that. Do that work in us now, even as we pray, so that as we walk out those doors, we can forgive those who we have yet to forgive in our hearts, that we might receive the forgiveness that you have already given us. We don't go out those doors alone. You are with us just like you are with us now. Do this work in us. It is in Jesus' name.